Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, May 19th. We begin with Premier Jason Kenney's bombshell announcement Wednesday night that he is resigning as leader of the UCP. We get reaction from MRU political science professor Lori Williams. Next, we continue our series on inflation and the across-the-board price increases for almost all consumer goods. In part two of our series, Sticker Shock, Global News Online reporter Craig Lord brings us some tips on how to stretch your grocery dollars. Then we look at the ongoing war in Ukraine. As military intelligence points to Russian hackers targeting Ukraine's Western allies, we examine just how prepared Canada is in the event of a cyber attack. We talk with retired Major General Rupert Jones. And finally, it's a powerful new exhibit which aims to educate Calgarians on the Holocaust. We speak with Dahlia Libin, executive producer of Here to Tell Faces of Holocaust, launching next week at Glenbow at the Edison. While 51% of the vote passes the constitutional threshold of a majority, it clearly is not adequate support to continue on as leader. And that is why tonight I have informed the president of the party of my intention to step down as leader of the United Conservative Party. That was Premier Jason Kenney following his resignation as leader of the UCP with details on the results and what happens next. We are joined by Lori Williams, political science professor at Mount Royal University. Good morning to you, Lori. Good morning, Andy. Before we get to the resignation, uh, let's talk about the, the results. Premier Kenny was surprised by the results, at least it seems. Uh, how about you? Were, were you surprised? The thing that, that frankly shocked me was that he got 51% and nevertheless resigned. That was not uh, top of my list. It was at the very bottom of possibilities. I'm not sure that any of us seriously contemplated that, given the things that he'd seen, said up leading up to the, the, the leadership uh, review and, and his, his reputation for such tenacity. Um, so... I mean, obviously, the numbers could have been, many people were speculating anywhere between 35 and 85%. Um, but the combination of 51% and a resignation was not on, on, certainly at the very bottom on my list, let's say. So, Laurie, in your opinion, why do you think he did decide to step down? I mean, as you said, he was very adamant that he was staying on as long as he got the plus one from the 50%. And, and you know, he just didn't seem to have any thoughts at all that he would listen to, you know, his his critics and, and step away. But he did in the end. Why? Well... I think for for starters, just looking at the prospects for the future, with half of the, the voting members against you, polling numbers indicating that 60% of Albertans and 56.5% of UCP identifiers want you gone, and then you're then facing probably a lot of pressure. In fact, there's a lot of, uh, of rumor that, that the results were delayed as long as they were because of the negotiations that were occurring um, behind closed doors. Uh, the prospect of the caucus meeting today with this kind of result, I mean, it would have been a, a mutiny. When I first heard the results before we heard that he was resigning, I just thought I would not want to be Jason Kenney in the meeting today um, with him trying to fight to stay on. I think the pressure would have continued to increase. It would have emboldened his critics. Uh, life would have been miserable for not just Jason Kenney, but for the party. We now know that the premier will stay on um, as premier until the successor is elected. And uh, so, what, so what happens as far as that process? If you could break that down for us, at the time frame, um, and, and where where do we see Jason Kenny past? Uh, you know when uh, the new leader is announced. 
a lot of questions we don't know the answers to. So uh, it does look like he's going to follow uh, the the uh, pattern of Ralph Klein and Ed Stelmack and stay on as premier until he was elected, unless he decides he wants to run for the leadership. Mm. Remember, he also often said, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. He may think if people are actually looking at the choices, and he's one of the choices, um, that he can win against them, and, and there's speculation about that, certainly amongst his staff today. If he does decide to run for the leadership, then he has to step down as premier. So those are all the things that they'll be talking about in the caucus meeting today. Um, but uh, if, as he's being clearly advised based on what he said last night, if he does decide to step down as premier, of course he's going to try to continue the work that his his plan that he's had since before he became premier will continue to be his focus. And then when he steps down. Uh, I suppose he could have options in terms of consulting and so forth. But um, once his premiership is is uh, done, then I think Jason Kenney's political, uh, or at least his, his elected political career, is at an end, and he'll be moving on to other things. Uh, it's hard to imagine what those might be because his entire life has been an elected political official. Speaking of those who might replace him, obviously the the two big names that we hear, Brian Jean, Danielle Smith, both of them openly critical of him. And then current cabinet ministers, Schweitzer, Taves and Savage. I've heard some experts saying, you know, it, it really should be somebody from within the cabinet that takes over. Your thoughts on that? Well, because they've got some sort of record in terms of government, uh, a bit of a, a, a hopefully like someone like uh, I would say Doug Schweitzer or Travis Taves. They've done pretty well in their portfolios, so I think they, they could bring that to the table and look like a more credible leader uh, for an Alberta that's facing a, an uncertain future and a party that's still very deeply divided. Um, the other cabinet ministers that have been floated are uh, Transportation Minister Rajan Sani, Health Minister Jason Popping, um, you know, and I, I've, I've heard those names sort of floated even before uh, before the, the announcement last night. Um, I think a lot of people are hoping that some sort of uh, new leader with with a new vision and uh, a fresh sort of ability to bring people together might be a good idea. You know, we've heard, of course, uh, Ronna Ambrose floated as a possibility yeah. in all of this, and she would be a formidable uh, uh, leader going into a new election. Yes, we'll watch it all unfold. Uh, we appreciate your time when uh, what would have been a, a busy day for you yesterday, Laurie. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you. That is Lori Williams, MRU political science professor. Food inflation across Canada is as bad now as it was back in 1981, with prices up nearly 10% in the past year. That has prompted some households to turn to meal kits as a way to manage costs and to reduce food waste. But in the second story in Global's Sticker Shock series, the Global News team digs into what this service means for your household's budget. Craig Lord is an online journalist for Global News and joins us now with details. Hi, Craig. Hi, how are you doing? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, so what does the research tell you about the cost of these meal kits and whether this is actually going to save people money? Yeah, we spoke to a lot of experts, uh, personal finance experts, people in the food industry, and they basically said meal kits are probably not going to save you much money on a meal-to-meal basis. They're costing between 8 and $13 on average per meal per serving there. So you know, if you buy those same ingredients at the grocery store, you're likely going to be saving money. Where you can find some savings 
in terms of meal kits is definitely the time. You don't have to worry about going out, thinking about what you're going to plan for your family's meals for the week. But also in terms of food waste, meal kits are very good at giving you exactly the portions that you need, exactly those ingredients so that everything uh, comes out just right. You don't have leftovers that you're throwing out or or uh, anything that uh, is going to waste. One of the biggest things that is leading people to, to waste their money on groceries is what they're throwing away afterwards. That's a huge point. Yeah, I guess so. The meal kits might save you time and, uh, you know, be better for the environment. But cost-wise, do we have any other tips for managing food inflation? In the end of the day, Craig, we all have to eat. So any other ways we can make those ends meet on the dinner table? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not something you can really get around uh, at this point. Costs are up on everything, more than 10% on fresh fruit and meats and stuff like pasta. You know, these staples up nearly 20%, so it's ridiculous. But going back to something I just said there is cutting down on food waste making sure that you're buying exactly what you need is one of the biggest tips that experts told us to lean into. So, you know, go to the grocery store with a list in hand. That'll that'll prevent you from from uh, buying stuff that you already have. And you're like, oh, great. Now I've got two bags of grapes in here. One of them's going to go bad. Or, you know, getting those impulse purchases. Uh, if you're buying impulse stuff at the grocery store, every time you go, your bill is going to be higher every single time you go. So going in with a little bit of forethought is one of the biggest tips that were recommended to us by our experts. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be watching for this second in the Sticker Shock series on Global. Thanks so much for joining us, Craig. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Craig Lord, online journalist for Global News. I've used the um, meal service kits. Yeah. Twice, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And you use them quite often, don't you? Yeah, probably once or twice a month. We do it as kind of like when I say a treat, it's not like we're going out for a fancy dinner. The treat is to not have to decide what to cook for dinner, to have these ingredients ready, and as uh, Craig said, they're delivered to your door, exact exact measure. Do you no think leftovers. it saves you money? It Yes and no, because uh, it does work out for us when we go, the one we typically go with is probably about $13 each. Mm-hmm. So dinner... Each box, each kit, um, or each person. Each person, I okay. think. So it would be about $25. Okay. But this is... Kind of, we don't do, I don't have a life, Sue. <laughs> so to, to have a, a fancier, more tasty dinner than just flipping burgers, which I like a lot, is you, and healthy choices too. Right. You can get different, you know, with couscous and, and uh, different vegetables that I would normally not go out of my way for. And isn't that kind of part That's of it? Part is of it, it. You know, you maybe try new things, they yeah. give you the recipe to put it all together, and it's, and it, for the most part, they're healthy meals. Yeah, so absolutely. So I think it worked out about $70 for three days, three meals worth of, uh, with for my wife and I. And the, the babies eat a grilled cheese sandwich because they don't eat anything. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's the cost. Are there leftovers? No, no. Okay. So we, but the waste, uh, if you're recycling all the packaging, you're good there. Uh, but yeah, so that's kind of a treat for us instead of going out for dinner. Yeah. But I can understand that you can make these things a lot cheaper or have different alternatives within some of these recipes at home. But here's what I like to think about, Sue, because you say you, there's nothing we can do about that 10 or 11% um, increase. So I think it's 10 plus in certain mm-hmm. items. And it does vary depending on what you're looking at and market value. Uh, but in the end, where we can we can't control that, but we can control where we're shopping. So maybe you shop at one of the Fufui grocery stores. We have so many choices here. I swear that if you were to if you change your habits, maybe you're already there. Like the No Frills Superstore, sure. even Walmart groceries. If those prices are already eight uh, percent cheaper than your regular higher mm-hmm. end grocery store, and it goes up ten your cost technically would be 2% higher than you're used to. I had to teach that to my sister. She lives in Toronto and she shops at the Fufui shops. 
And, and they're great. Which is lo- they're amazing. They're lovely. Great. You get a, a, an amazing selection. The food is delicious, but you're paying way more money. And, you know, that's just not economically intelligent for, you know, once in a while, great. Or if you can afford it, great. But if you can't, yeah. there are far more, uh, you know, economically intelligent ways to go and do your shopping, to buy your basics. Why are you spending the most money possible for, uh, you know, Kleenex, for example, yep. which you're just simply throwing in the garbage? Why buy it on sale, buy the no-name brands, the off-brands, that sort of thing? There are ways to save money for You might sure. find a good deal on the off-brands. Like, for example, we talked about the, on this program, the package macaroni and cheese dinner uh some of these off-brand ones from uh, like an our compliments or great value whatever they may be the pc one yeah yeah they taste they taste better sometimes yes they do discover something and there if you look on the box they're all made by big name companies they're just an off-brand yeah a hundred percent so you know read those boxes you pay far less for the product and it's oftentimes you're right just as good if not better Uh, ken has a good idea too and you know his wife karen makes meals and then makes up the leftovers for him, freezes them. And then when he's out, he's a truck driver. So oh, when yeah. he goes out on the road, takes leftovers. You and I, I think, are the only ones in our families that eat leftovers. That's always our breakfast the next day. Yeah, yeah. Well, I feel bad throwing it out. It's there. It's ready. You enjoyed it once. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, you know, not only preparing and thinking ahead is it, but part of that is being savvy and knowing your prices. Yes. For you mentioned the basics when you were talking about your sister. If you have a sta- uh, like a stable of things you always order, Take your time and go to these stores. I'll give you a good example. The the and I'm I'm gonna paint myself as a weirdo. The bone broth, <laughs> the bone broth that I drink on a daily oh, basis. Yeah, I forgot about one that. of the ones I buy comes in a box like a Tetra pack. Yeah. At one of the big grocery stores, it is five ninety nine. Okay. And I found it at Walmart of all places in their grocery aisle for three twenty nine. It's two dollars and seventy cents difference for something I use on a basically a daily basis. Right. Add and I that up know, over time. Yeah. And I wouldn't have known that. So, I mean, you've got to know your prices, too, because is it a deal or not? Um, but like you say, changing those habits would be huge. But the planning ahead, that wins all, t- all the time. 100%. Uh, we can't get away from the inflation, so we just have to take these tips and tricks from each other and use them wisely. As the war in Ukraine rages on, there are concerns that Russia may be planning a cyber attack on Canada. How prepared are we for this type of attack? Retired Major General Rupert Jones joins us now to explain. Good morning to you, sir. Hey, Andy, really nice to talk to you. Good morning from a sunny London. All right, sunny London. That's a rarity in the yeah. sun. Um, let, let's, let's break this down then. How real is the threat of a cyber attack on Canada? Well, I think for all of our countries, it's a very real threat, not just from Russia as relates to to what's happening in Ukraine, but more broadly, uh, hackers and indeed state-sponsored cyber is a very, very real threat that all of our countries face and we must take seriously. Russian hackers seem to have been an issue even before Russia started their war in Ukraine. But does this make it worse now with Canada standing by Ukraine's side? Does Russia feel like, you know, this might be payback to try and get back at the Western allies? Well, we know that Russia has a very capable offensive cyber capability, um, and that's real, uh, and they've been able to use it uh, in a deniable manner. Of course, by standing up to Ukraine, there are consequences. 
Um, and those are the consequences that our governments are taking uh, very seriously. Uh, it's absolutely right that they stand up to the naked um, uh, aggression of Russia. Uh, but, but we know with doing so, there are some vulnerabilities to that. And we, and we must be prepared. Uh, and I think all of our countries have a great deal more work to do to be really well prepared against the, these sorts of threats. Major General, we, we know what the, you know battle looks like on the battlefield. We've seen images for hundreds of years. Uh, but I'm wondering if you can paint a picture of, you say that they're very organized, the Russian cyber attacker, attackers. What does an operation like this look like? Does it look like a basic office or is it more underground than that? No, so, so I mean, in a way, this is the interesting thing about cyber warfare. You know, the character of warfare is changing. And so you can attack a potential adversary from anywhere in the world. Uh, and so you need to be defending against it. And, you know, one of the challenges I think all of our nations have had is to really get the right digitally capable individuals. So what I think we face now is our, our, our conventional soldiers. You talk about, the, you know, the, how we would picture a battlefield, you know. So we need those soldiers who are toughing it out uh, on the conventional battlefield. But what, equally what we need is skilled people who can fight in, in the virtual domain. And all of our countries have got to do more to harness that, that digital capability. Major General, you spent 30 years in the British Army working closely with Canadian Armed Forces as Deputy Commander of the U.S.-led coalition that defeated ISIS in Iraq and Syria. And uh, I know you were overseeing battles that, you know, combine some of the most sophisticated tech available. Do you see any similarities to what Russia is doing now to that time, or have they just completely advanced beyond what we've ever seen before? I, I wouldn't say they've advanced beyond anything we've seen before. And this is, I've worked very closely with Canadian forces, and it was always a great privilege to, to do so. We have we have a you know, great affinity with, with each other. You know, we certainly saw in dealing with ISIS, we were using cyber against them. That's in the in the public domain. Uh, but but you know, Russia and you know, war war feeds revolution and change. And so, what we're seeing on both sides of this conflict is uh, innovation and the pace of technology moving on. And there's and there's important lessons for all of our countries uh, in in that. And how do we, as governments, how do we harness the potential we have in our workforce? Uh, you know, and your military is looking at my military is looking at it. And interestingly, you know. The trick is, how do you find these digitally skilled individuals? Because, you know, they're kind of everywhere. But if you don't know you've got the potential, then you don't know you can go into the digital sphere. And I've been kind of supporting an Australian company that has been trying to help with this. And they're, they're supporting your military. It's a company called With You With Me, who for the first time that I've seen is beginning to answer the mail on this. And it's saying, okay, all of us might have the potential to be a digital warrior. And it's, it's a company that's trying to harness and identify that potential. We've got to do that because I'm not convinced our education systems are identifying and preparing us with the right digital skills. Well, and it's interesting, too, because when you talk about cyber attacks, I think we think of financial institutions and just government agencies, but it can be much broader than that. And it doesn't have to necessarily bring down, for example, a power grid. Uh, this is something that can create confusion, um, you know, in a society. Is that one of the issues, that a cyber attack can be so broad and have many different tentacles to it? I, I think that's absolutely right, Andy. And, of course, it means you may not initially know you're even under attack. And if you are under attack, who's it coming from? So to give you an example, we used offensive cyber in Syria uh, to, uh, to damage ISIS's very effective media uh, facility. 
Now that's not like dropping a bomb that has a has a uh, finite or an infinite effect. You know, a cyber attack might only be temporary. Uh, it might be disruptive, but it's still very, very powerful. Can we even, as individuals, do anything to protect ourselves as this major battle rages on on the Internet and through computers? I think there's a couple of things we can, we can do. I mean, the first one is we've got to be aware. For us to think that this doesn't affect me, doesn't affect you, would, would be to be naive. So I think we all need to be personally aware of this. I think increasingly we are because we know that we, we can just be attacked by hackers who are after our money. The, the same principle applies here. The second thing I would encourage people to do is to, is to get digitally competent. You know, this isn't a black art. Um, you know, our, our success in 50 years' time will look back and they will all be digitally very, very competent people. They've got, they're going to have to be. And I think we're at that turning point now where people all need to try and work out what is their digital aptitude. And if you've got the aptitude, then upskill yourselves and say, Com- companies like with you, with me, are really fundamental to that. Very interesting conversation. Uh, we appreciate your time, Major General. Hey, really nice talking to you both. Take care. Good stuff. That is retired Major General Rupert Jones and uh, very interesting times that we live in. And I I can only imagine having that many years uh, under your belt over 30 years. Seeing battle from, you know, the the gun, Mm -hmm. it's not not, not like it's going back to the 1800s. But yeah, the fact that you can't see and and you could be in someone's basement, you could be anywhere in the world on behalf of a country committing a cyber. And the damage they can do. It's crazy. It really is. Starting May 27th, Glenbow at the Edison is proud to present a one-of-a-kind exhibit that every Calgarian needs to see. Here to Tell Faces of Holocaust Survivors is a commemorative and educational ph- uh, photography exhibition features both living and deceased Holocaust survivors with a connection to our city. With all the details, we're joined by Dahlia Libin, executive producer of Here to Tell. Good morning to you, Dahlia. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Well, the material, certainly powerful, sounds like a powerful exhibit. Can you tell us a little bit more about what people will see if they're checking it out? Yes, absolutely. This um, this project uh, came together over pretty much the course of COVID. Um, we are, the reality is we're soon to be in a, a world without Holocaust survivors. And um, there was just a, a, a need to hear from our living survivors and from the descendants on, you know, uh, the, the Holocaust experiences of the survivors that, you know, ended up having a connection to our city, um, but also really focusing on the resilience and how they, uh, you know, continued on and, and planted new roots and moved to Canada and Calgary and, and built very productive, fulfilling lives. Dahlia, you are the granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor. So, you know, in your opinion, why is it so crucial that we keep these first-hand stories alive? Uh, for sure. Uh, yes, I am the granddaughter to actually four Holocaust survivors. Um, so all four of my grandparents uh, were orphaned, uh, The only, pretty much the only survivors from their entire families. Um, and so as, uh, you know, I'm now a mother, um, and so I'm now raising th- fourth-generation survivors. Um, understanding what happened, uh, there's so much Holocaust distortion, uh, Holocaust denial that exists uh, in the world. And um, it's so important that we are um, speaking and hearing the true stories of what happened, because if the Holocaust happened, it, it could happen again. Anti-Semitism's on the rise, and um, it's just, yes, this is was an absolute passion project near and dear to my heart. Um, but I'm hoping, you know, this uh, 
this this project um, and exhibit will connect to all Calgarians to come and learn about the Holocaust, humanize the victims, read about their experiences, but also be inspired. They they didn't just survive; they they thrived. They went on in life and did amazing things. Dahlia, you know we can we can look on the computer. We can learn a lot. We can find out a lot about the Holocaust with the image in the stories, but can you give us an, an understanding of how much more powerful it is when you actually uh, attend an exhibit like this, how it might be a greater learning uh, example for people? There's no better way to learn about, you know, someone's experience, especially a Holocaust experience, than from an, an, a survivor, somebody who went through it. Uh, we can read about the Holocaust in textbooks. This exhibit, we, we were very deliberate with the choices in photography and how we approached it. Um, when you come to the exhibit, you're going to see the faces of these survivors. They're in black and white, and that was intentional. We wanted sharp contrast for uh, visitors to see and have a look into the eyes of these survivors, see the lines on their faces, um, be drawn in, and then be able to read. And, and the bios are quite short. Uh, they're not comprehensive in, in any means, but uh, get a look into what these people went through. We will also, at the exhibit, um, have uh, survivors uh, come, uh, it, it, and as well as descendants, who will be there on site to meet uh, visitors and be able to, to talk and share some of their knowledge. Um, but uh, like I said, this is we're, we're coming to the end of an era where we will not be you know, we will not be around Holocaust survivors for much longer. And so I'm hoping that the city will come together and really seize this opportunity to come um, and meet survivors, but also um, just be able to read and learn and keep the conversation going. Very important, very powerful. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Dahlia. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks. Dahlia Libin is the executive producer of Here to Tell. It is at the Glenbow at the Edison. So first of all, admission is free because from now on forever and ever admission will be free to the Glenbow. But as they do renovations, they've sort of moved their location to the Edison and that's where this display will be in. Yeah, I've got the address here. It's in an office tower, basically kitty corner from the Glenbow Museum, which again will be shuttered for quite some time. It's going to be great when it's open. Oh, yeah. But the Edison is a building located at 159th Avenue Southwest. Now, within this, the second floor, you'll find Glenbow at the Edison, kind of their offshoot, if you will, a pop-up of the museum. Mm -hmm. So we still get the opportunity to experience it, just not at the main facility. Again, free for you. It's called Here to Tell Faces of Holocaust Survivors. Super important. Go check it out. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.